Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here. <laughs> Why did I say it like that? And I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. I think we have to laugh again, don't we? Hello there, Steve. Uh, this is the uh, the children's BBC edition of <laughs> Songs from I, a Padded Envelope. Well, I, I felt a little chuckle coming before you uh, you broke into your own chuckle. Well, I'm blaming you because you were smirking. I saw you, I could see you having a little smirk when I started yeah. and that's what sent me over the edge. I was thinking back to those early days. So, yeah. Anyway, which early days, you know, early, early, like episodes, I don't know, five episodes. Oh, okay. Ago, Not like know. when you were six or something. Yeah. Some sort of memory you <laughs> flashback. I, I can't remember when I was six. Simon Barber and Brian O'Connor are the hosts of the brilliant Soda Jerker on Songwriting podcast, a wonderful show in which they interview world-renowned songwriters about their craft. In a recent episode, Simon mentioned that he and co-host Brian were returning to songwriting themselves, and that was the catalyst for this appearance on Songs from a Padded Envelope. I'm going to confess I was slightly nervous going into this one. Was that the same for you? I, I definitely did have nerves. I mean, we, they, you know, they're veteran podcasters and it really is, you know, it's a top rated podcast and it's a brilliant listen, isn't it? So yeah, there, yeah. Was, there was a hint of uh, a necess necessity for some nerves. But that that soon that soon evaporated though, didn't it? Because as soon as the as soon as they were present in the room with us and that it was there, they were so at ease and relaxed and giving of themselves that it it was just such a lovely natural conversation, wasn't it? Well, yeah, there was a slight sort of technical issue that needed resolving um, before we could get into the recording proper, so, which gave us a chance to talk to Brian before Simon joined us. Um, and I find that I find that really helpful to s settle the nerves. <laughs> I really enjoyed delving into their music making and those early days of their friendship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think um, there was there was a really um, a really lovely kind of origin story about um, where they started recording from, and it kind of reminded me that everyone needs someone to kind of start them off on their their sort of musical journey, a sort of point of inspiration that might be someone that gives you your first guitar or in their case, you know, something to record on um, or someone that just feeds you kind of music of, that inspires you. But it was, uh, yeah, it was a nice reminder of that. Yeah. And their, and that their, their kind of friendship evolved around films initially rather than music and a love of sort of similar taste in films and stuff. John Hughes films, I think they mentioned, which, uh, um, sort of places it at a moment in time but the conversation naturally moves into the, the success of their podcast and there's a lot to explore there I was particularly um interested in their creative uh in the creative satisfaction they get from making the show compared to music making yeah absolutely I mean it kind of it was a real lesson in um someone I think it was Joe Thompson talked about the kind of seed of an idea and they definitely you know this was following the seed of an idea with no real way of knowing where it was going to end up. And it's taken them on this, you know, incredible journey. They're into the nine, nine years now and, uh, and we're very keen to sort of say that the buzz has kind of, has never left them. You know, it's still, it's still the kind of hit they get from meeting the people and they are getting to meet, meet a stellar cast of musicians you know, the, uh, the nerves that precede that and then the, you know, the sort of unbridled joy that comes from having those conversations afterwards is it's still there, isn't it? 
Mm. Yeah, it's exciting. It was really exciting hearing them talk about some of the the, the sort of experiences that they've that they've had. But it's another sort of example of um, being open to a creative idea and letting it run and seeing where it takes you. Um, it's not making music. It's but it is creating something, and I think that's one of the things that's sort of a thread that's run throughout all of these podcasts is is being open to an idea and letting it and, and giving it the fuel that it needs to see where it goes and in in their case you know a, a, a seed of an idea for a podcast about songwriting and what it's led to for them is it's really inspiring i found it really inspiring yeah absolutely because it is i mean it's just such a great listen for those for those listeners who haven't gone to check it out already it's a it's a must listen and it really kind of um clearly it's evolved over the time um you know over that nine-year period and that but it is very much a kind of about um sort of demystifying the art of songwriting without detracting from the inherent kind of magic of of crafting music mm -hmm. yeah yeah in fact it really feeds that um but well and uh, one of the things that i'm really grateful to them for is them sharing a demo of their own music because they do talk about um thoughts that they've had around people scrutinizing the music that they make given the position that they've put themselves in as uh, through the podcast you know around talking about songwriting and having all this accrued all this knowledge around songwriting um hesitating to put out new music um not because of what people would say but no, but no, having a you know an understanding that there will be people who will scrutinize it uh un, un, unnecessarily um so yeah grateful to them for, for for sharing a demo with us in in this context yeah it was bold and brave of, um, of them to kind of put themselves on the line with that and put themselves in a completely different situation coming on coming on the padded envelope podcast and it was you know it was great to hear that they've got this and they have a vast archive of songs that they've you know collated and collected over the time that are kind of still still sitting there and i suppose that you know there was some you know regret that they expressed about the fact that um you know it had taken them slightly taken them away from from their focus in terms of songwriting and making music but that they had an aspiration to to you know to get back into that arena and i think we fully encouraged that wouldn't we oh yeah yeah well thanks to simon and brian for coming on the show it was a really great conversation and a real treat to get to speak to them because as we've said but ben and i both fans of the soda jerker podcast it is a fantastic listen and the archive of interviews that they've got is is vast and there are some real gems in there so um yeah definitely worth exploring if you're enjoying this podcast please do swing by to um apple headquarters and um stick five stars in the suggestion box that would be very much appreciated so this is episode 18 of songs from a padded envelope with simon barber and brian o'connor my name's simon barber i'm one half of so the jerker and the song that we chose was a song that we wrote about a decade ago i think it's called sweet tea and it was a demo that we made which we were kind of happy with at the time and uh, we just thought we'd revisit it now and I'm Brian O'Connor, and I'm the other half of Soda Jerker. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Ben and I are both fans of your podcast, and we'll definitely come on to that in a while. But could we kick things off with uh, telling us how the two of you met? Sure, yeah. Sorry, do you want to go? Uh, we go way back. We met at school when we were, how old? About 13, something like that. 
Well, actually, about I'd say twelve. We met. We met in about nineteen ninety. It must have been yeah when we started secondary school, and um, but we were in the same form um, at the start of secondary school. But we probably didn't become friends till maybe sort of year year eight, year nine. I would say when we yeah. So when we were about thirteen, fourteen. And was it was it music that brought you brought you together? Did you start playing music? I suppose we just got interested in the same stuff, probably into bands and into uh, movies and probably watching the same kind of TV shows and sharing VHS tapes and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it was probably films to start with, actually. I think I remember us being sat together in uh, in French. I think it was Mr. Manning, French with Mr. Manning. Um, and yeah, I mean, somehow we got talking about, I don't know if it was like Ferris Bueller's Day Off or it was John Hughes movies, I think, that... We, we discovered a shared love for those. Um, and from that point on, we'd sort of endlessly quote those movies to each other. And then I think Sai was sort of getting into playing the guitar around that time, weren't you? Yeah, I was about 14, I think, when I took up the guitar. Yeah, and Sai was already kind of in a sort of a, a, a band, a, a, a trio called Blue Rinse. Um <laughs> And they had it was two guitarists and a vocalist. So I was one of the guitarists, and then I, um, I was drafted in to play bass. I've never picked up the bass before, um, but I figured, oh, you know, just to be in the gang, I'll, I'll have a go. Classic bass player move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, had no no prior interest whatsoever. I'd, pl- I'd started playing the guitar and learning a few chords and stuff. So I was teaching me a few chords and things, and then this opportunity came up to to uh, have a go at the bass. And uh, I've been playing bass ever ever since. Yeah. Where did that lead to then? After when when you joined and and picked up the bass, how quickly did that become a little bit more serious? And um, well, well for me it was just as soon as I had the first blue rinse rehearsal I went to in um, in size size front room, and they had a bass there for me. It was an encore like catalog job, you know, uh, <laughs> Fender Precision copy, black and white, and uh, yeah, and I literally did kind of put it in my hands, and I just kind of felt around for the kind of root notes of whatever song we started playing and, and that was the, the start of it really. I was just going to say, I think the first big step with that band was getting to record because we went to a school that was run by Catholic monks and um, the, the music teacher, Brother James, was um, was a cool guy who recommended XTC albums to us and um, he also had an Amstrad Studio 100 cassette 4-track in the music room which he eventually sold to me for 50 quid. And um, he, he he brought us in one day on a Saturday and let us record the first Blue Rinse demos. He played keyboard bass on one track, as I remember. What was that experience like, Simon? What was the first recording experience like? Pretty cool. We did it in the music room at school and and he was sort of engineering and uh, like he played keyboard bass, as I said. And yeah, it was fine. Um, the band was a bit sort of ragtag and as you can imagine at that age, it was a bit messy. Um, but it was quite thrilling to hear something back that you'd, you know, written and eventually recorded. Yeah, that we've had people mention um, that mo- in previous episodes that moment where things kind of lock together and you start and you re- you get that kind of that uh, adrenaline and that feeling of hang on something's happening here when we're playing together. You you, you know that that locking together thing. When mm-hmm. was the first time you sort of realised that? Well, I can remember like that that re- first rehearsal I attended, which I mentioned in uh, in Sai's parents' front room. That, I mean, that was the first time I'd ever played music with with other people, and it, it's by the fact I was picking up an instrument that I'd never touched before. 
and that moment when they counted in the song and I was suddenly, oh, playing in a band. It, that was really, I remember that very vividly actually because it was it, as, as ragtag as it was, um, it, it was very thrilling. You're like, oh, this is a new, I've never felt this experience before. This is, um, this is quite exhilarating in its way, you know. Brian has an encyclopedic memory for almost everything that's happened to us since we were 13. <laughs> so um, you, you can get all the details you want. Yeah, you, you really need at least one person with that sort of memory, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think that there was another sort of stage where we started rehearsing at a place called Crash Studios in Liverpool, mm-hmm. which was um, a fairly well-known rehearsal studio. Lots of well-known bands had rehearsed there, and we rented a room there for four hours and and brought our guitars in. I don't think there was any drums at the time. No, we didn't have We just sort of rehearsed with no drums. But I remember cranking, I rented an amp, like a PV stack or something, and cranking that up for the first time in a rehearsal room was something Mm. as well. Oh, yeah. Mm. I think we were doing covers of State of Love and Trust by Pearl Jam at the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, we spent a lot lot of hours at that um, rehearsal studios over the years. I think it only only recently closed, maybe in the last couple of years. It was still open for business until a short while ago, yeah. So were you both big music fans at this point? Um, I think Cy was more more than me. I think I, I had me me favourites. I was already kind of a Beatles and a and a Prince fan from when I was about nine and ten, but just you know not in a in a sort of you know serious way. Just in that I, I gravitated towards those sorts of artists, you know. But probably not until I started in the in in the band and actually playing an instrument. That was probably when I started to kind of investigate bands and, you know, get into the... I think for us it was like sort of Pearl Jam, wasn't it, Ty? And um, Nirvana and um, Chili Peppers and it was all that kind of scene for us. Yeah, it was the early 90s, basically. Yeah. But then we, we took that Studio 104 track and put it in my living room and... Um, we we made demos together on that for quite a while, didn't we? We made like cassettes full of stuff in there, just overdubbing second and third guitars and vocals and things. For yeah, yeah. Ages. We were we were going under the name Rose's Twin by then because my mum had mentioned some um, woman who lived down the road and she had a twin and her name was Rose. <laughs> yeah, we'd left Blue Rinse at this point just to, to give you some context there. Yeah, that that didn't last very long. So yeah, we just took to the four track after that and just started kind of making our own demos and things as a as a duo. Interestingly, though, we'd end up in bands with lineups. Um, ultimately, it was always me and Brian just at the core of it, writing songs together and recording stuff together. And that's kind of proceeded throughout the whole history of yeah. us working together. Really, interestingly enough. Were there any of those bands that were felt like more serious propositions for you, where you'd make some mu- music and maybe send some demos off anywhere? Yeah, well, eventually we sort of evolved, like, um, after a couple of years of just sort of, you know, making four-track demos and things, we eventually recruited the drummer um, who we, we met up with in that same rehearsal room, Crash Studios, called his name's Chris, Chris Pye. And, um, yeah, and so, you know, we got a little bit more sort of serious then and we actually had a, we had a, we actually had a drummer and he had a, a, his garage converted into a rehearsal space as well, so we used to go and play with him frequently and um and then at some point we got a singer in and then the next few years was just the kind of revolving door of of different singers until until sort of i guess maybe at the early noughties really and and um that was when we realized well maybe Sai should just be the singer because we just couldn't keep a singer to save our lives 
and we were into our twenties by then as well. And which you know, it's just I think if you're going to keep a band together, it's much easier when you're in your sort of you know your teens, uh, just less responsibilities and things, stuff like that. So as more time went on, we were just struggling to kind of keep all the band members, and then. Uh, Cy became the singer and we got in a, um, a great keyboard player called Pete Watson and a backing singer called Vicky. And um, and then I think, after you know, after that, a, a long time of sort of scrabbling around in the dark, we actually started to kind of, you know, gig properly, um, sort of make proper, you know, proper recordings. We ended up doing an album and um, self-funded album and stuff and, and touring and, and all that bit, you know. Yeah, it was the the um, EP that we did after that first album that was the sort of peak of that lineup. The band was called Santa Carla by that point, mm-hmm. which is the the murder capital of the world in uh, the Lost Boys. Mm. <laughs> um, almost everything we did had some kind of nineteen eighties reference to it, um, and uh, we did an EP. And the, the first single off that EP was played by Jonathan Ross on his Radio 2 show, and we thought, ah, we've arrived, you know, because <laughs> he seemed to like it. We were like, finally, we're getting the attention we deserve. Um, and then some stuff off that was on Radio 1 and 6 Music and things like that, and we were the gigs we were doing were sort of slightly more high profile. There were bands at the time that were really popular in the enemy, like the Hoosiers and bands like that. And we were opening up for those bands and playing all the bar fi- bar fly venues around the country and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And you know, we we sort of figured at that point that um, we had a chance, you know. But of course, rock and roll <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> never quite works out the way you think. So yeah, eventually uh, our, our longtime drummer uh, moved to China, didn't he? He did, so that yeah. Made rehearsal more challenging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we sort of lost. Um, I, I don't know. We we considered getting um, someone else in, and then I don't know. We, I think we just felt a bit defeated at that point, and kind of retreated back to the to the studio and just like kept on kind of writing songs and stuff, just just between ourselves, maybe, maybe with a view to kind of you know becoming songwriters for hire and that kind of thing. So when you were when you were out on the road with the band touring the country, did you have? sort of some major label sort of interest at any point we we always had people sort of um nibbling around the band didn't we we had um, scouts from uh polydor and all the usual sort of things that happen um there was quite a few local managers who were interested and we struck up a nice partnership with um a chap who was working with uh, the coral at the time and he'd mm-hmm. um He'd started quite a, a few interesting independent labels, or he'd, he'd help set them up, like Be Unique and Heavenly and um, Delta Sonic. He was one of the sort of founding people in that. And so um, we were developing a, a, a sort of an independent label with him and the band at the same time, and that was good. And we managed to put out um, a few releases, but the main one that we put out on the label was um, by a guy called Nick Saunders, who was a really great sort of solo acoustic singer-songwriter, sort of James Taylor, Nick Drake type, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did quite well as well. That got national coverage in Mojo and The Word and all those sorts of things. And so we, we thought maybe we'd have a a kind of a career as, um, you know, impresarios, songwriters, maybe something along the lines of the Chic organization. We'd go in the studio, write tracks, put people on them, that sort of thing, you know. So did you put some energy into into trying to make that happen then? What, what was your sort of thought process when you were, had that sort of feeling that that was what you wanted to do? Mainly just writing as much as we could and developing studio space, which we did in my loft. <laughs> 
and we we sort of got together and wrote. I mean, there was a, a period with the band where we wrote sort of like about a hundred tracks, wasn't there? Yeah, well, it was around the time when Side decided to become. Um, well, Side didn't decide. We all decided. Um, it was a collective decision, and yeah, we we decided right. We're going to we're just going to log um, like every idea that we've got you know, sort of uh, that we've accumulated over the past like five years, whatever. And and just over a series of, of a few months, we meet up every maybe a couple of times a week and just um, set the, what were we recording on then? Was it the uh, that Roland? Pro Tools. Oh, was it Pro Tools by then? I couldn't, because yeah, yeah. you had that Roland um, digital recorder, oh, yeah. didn't you as the, well? The VS-16, v- yeah. which was a really good 16-track sort of standalone. Right. Ben and I play in a band called flotation toy warning in the first album we i had a vsa 80 and we slaved we slaved it with yeah, one of those it was a good machine uh, to varying degrees of success oh i love i mean no, I, yeah, I, I got loved, really into it i loved the 1680 um interestingly when i bought it obviously it was quite expensive at the time it cost like about two grand or something and um they sent me two of them and I was so honest that I rang them up and said, you've sent me two. And they went, oh, why did you tell us that? <laughs> <laughs> so I sent one back. I must have been, I could have slaved them together and had a 32-track studio. <sighs> must have been crazy. But anyway, yeah, we were on the Digi. It's a horrible, a horrible we way to the... record, to having the two <laughs> oh, together. Was it? Sorry. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I don't want to remind yeah. you of the time when you pressed the delete button at the end of the day's recording, mate. Oh. No, don't do that. Don't do that. No, you you had to console yourself with a pickled egg down the local pub. <laughs> yeah, we were on the Digi 001 by then. Pro right. So oh, okay. We logged all of our ideas, and so we had like by the time we got together as as what we called Soda Jerker, we had like this kind of repertoire of stuff that we'd accumulated over the years, and we'd kind of logged it quite efficiently well, as well. So. I- yeah, and we'd added to that, I think, as well, hadn't we? Because, um, well, I think this was at the sort of at the birth of Dropbox. So sort of going getting towards kind of like maybe 20, 2008, something like that, um, we'd started doing this weekly thing of just like dropping ideas, like a song a week, you know, um, like like one from me, one from Cy, and we just dropped them in the Dropbox, and eventually we had about kind of 40 songs in 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 that folder you know and then from that we kind of sort of worked up some um some decent quality um demos just the two of us um one of which you'll hear at the at the end of this podcast when were they starting to find their way to sort of other people or were uh, were other people coming and commissioning some songwriting from you that we never got to that stage because we we started the podcast basically um (laughs) we we spent the first few years mistake yeah yeah um we sort of, I guess, I guess the Santa Carla thing ended in like 2007 and then we sort of regrouped and we're like, right, what should we do? And then Soda Jerker happened and we were like, right, that's, that's our collective name now. Um, and then we started writing songs towards, towards that kind of project again, yet with a view to sort of like seeing if other people wants to record them or getting them synced, all that kind of stuff, you know? And then, um, I don't know, just just as a way of uh, of kind of drawing more attention to ourselves, really, because no one really knew or cared who we were. Um, we thought, right, let's... Um, the podcasts were kind of in their infancy then, and Sai suggested, why don't we maybe do a songwriting podcast? Um, and then, you know, that sort of ended up snowballing into what it's become. 
and uh, and as such is kind of sidelined the songwriting ironically enough for us you know well that's what we we say that i mean we, i think it's it's something we've sort of it's an excuse we may have fallen back on in recent years you know um but, but i think it's true to an extent you know we could we could probably make more time to write to be fair um but uh yeah we're, we're working towards that again now um because we're going into our sort of uh we're about to enter our 10th year of the show which is kind of crazy congratulations that's sort of, amazing thank you yeah, thank nice. you yeah it's our, our ninth birthday in about a month less than a month and uh and sort of for the for the 10th anniversary we want, we want to try and get get something together kind of music wise um to sort of you know um commemorate the occasion so if you still got this big archive of songs mm. that exist then we've got yeah. every i mean size kept everything we've we did since we were about 15. This I still got the yeah. old cassettes from the Amstrad 4 track and you know, they'll never see the light of day. <laughs> oh, come on. Now, wait a second. I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> um, but they're nice to have just as, you know, they're like sort of like baby photos, you know what I mean? But um, but yeah, there's everything, you know, we, we've never really thrown anything away because you just never know. Um, I mean, that's happened to us as well in songwriting terms you know we've been writing something and then all of a sudden we've remembered something from a song about 10 years earlier and that works as a bridge you know um and we've spoken to songwriters who 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 kind of work like that as well sometimes so it's always worth keeping stuff you never know when it when it might come in handy i've got a soda jerk a question to ask you actually brian because you were mentioning mm -hmm. before about how you, you you writing songs and and simon writing songs as well so do you write on the do you use the bass to write on no, I mean, I've, I've sort of, I might have on a, you know, handful of occasions, maybe sort of come up with a, a baseline first for something. And then we, we've built a kind of song around that, but it's mostly, um, mostly guitar and piano, kind of the standard, standard thing, maybe slightly more piano in, in my case, probably slightly more guitar for you, Si. Yeah. Do you always, do you always write separately from each other or do you write together sometimes? We've done both, haven't we? Yeah, well, it used to always be together. Um, certainly, when when we kicked off, I mean, well, in in Santa Carla, Sai was originally kind of the, the the chief songwriter. Really, he he started really early. Like when by the time we met, I think Sai was already writing kind of lyrics and poetry and stuff. And um, it, it took a few years for me really to sort of muster up the courage to even present anything resembling a song, you know. Um, and then sort of as just the, the, the Santa Carla thing evolved, we just became more of a sort of partnership. Um, and then once that kind of um, morphed into Soda Jerky, yeah, it was all... Well, you know, usually one of us would kind of originate something, I think, I think that's how that worked. We'd, we each would have a song and then we'd help the other to kind of finish it and then um, and then just track it. I think we, we were kind of... Doing a bit of sort of writing and recording on on the fly, really, with some of those songs as well. You mentioned starting the uh, the podcast, so if we, if we can just move move on to a bit of a a couple of questions about about the Soda Jerker on songwriting podcast. You've had so many sort of pinch yourselves moments over the lifetime of the show so far, and uh, and I love the way you speak so excitedly about the conversations you've had with people. You know, there's a real genuine sort of passion to the way you talk about it. Um, can you share a bit of the journey you've been on with the show and some of the more surprising and affecting experiences you've had? Well, I mean, where to start? <laughs> As you say, there's like a, over 170 episodes now. So not only have we learned so much about 
songwriting, but we've had got to have all these experiences with all these people, you know, that we never dreamed we'd walk into a room with and sit with and talk to. And everyone's great for different reasons, you know. I mean, some of them you just, you know, they're, they're a legend and you can't believe you're going to meet them and whatever. And other people, um, you might have discovered their work relatively recently, but when you meet them, they surprise you with their depth of insight about the process or whatever. So you come away from these things almost always just completely buzzing, really, that you've had some kind of experience with someone and learned something new. You know, it's, it's an incredible journey, as you said, that we've been on. Um, we we often refer to it as like a masterclass because it's just like we've we've gotten to learn from the best over the course of so many years now. Um, maybe that's one sort of shadowing reason that we're not writing as many songs because yeah. uh, you know once you emerge from that class, you've got to produce the goods, haven't you? Yeah, I think there was a definite um, you know after we sort of gathered a, a decent number of episodes, um, I think a certain kind of anxiety started to creep in because obviously, you know, we've been doing the, the, the song the songs under the kind of so the jerk of banner. And, you know, they were they were on our site and stuff and they were there for anyone to hear. And I think we started to get a little bit uh, maybe a little bit paranoid or like, oh shit, you know, this stuff this stuff isn't isn't really good enough. You know, what if like because we were starting to get an audience um and, you know, we knew that well if if we were if if the roles were reversed and we were like listeners and we discovered this podcast our song and we would be checking out well, what's their stuff like you know what I mean so we just kind of assumed people would probably be checking out our songs and we started to get a little bit oh shit you know we've got to kind of kick it up a gear I think that's that's still sort of in the back of our minds you know when, when we finally do put some some music out we want it to be you know we know that there'll be some people sitting back with their arms folded okay then come on let's hear your little songs because um, people just would, you know, that's just what that's just what people are like. Not not all people. I think I think we've we've generated a lot of goodwill over the years. So I think when we finally do sort of release some some music, I think people will be quite open and receptive to it. But there will be other people in you know skulking in the background, like hmm, come on then impress me. Um, and we're very conscious of that. Um, but I think I think as we go along, as we've gone along, we we have been absorbing all this stuff, and I think you know it's not like we've completely ceased from. From writing, I don't want to give that impression. You know, we we we're always gathering ideas. We're always singing stuff, playing stuff into our phone. We you know occasionally like still using that Dropbox folder and chucking ideas. So there's just 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 there's hundreds of ideas in there by now. And um, yeah, so it, it's just you know when when the time comes, we we want it to to be as good as it can can be. We want it to at least you know. Well, it, you know, it may not exceed some of the, the work of the people we've interviewed, but we wanted to kind of hold its own. Yeah. And yeah. we haven't really had the studio space for a couple of years as well. Um, so the, the space behind me with all the stuff is is like the first opportunity we've had to actually get together and record and have the instruments on hand and all of that, you know, yeah. for a and long then, time. Th- so. th- except uh, that little thing called COVID. Yeah, <laughs> it just right. kind of... Pres- <laughs> prevented us from being in the same room for seven months yeah um yeah but you know it's it's all set up and, and as you guys can see it's a, it's a very impressive uh space so um it's all set up ready for us to to, to get in there and actually get working you know when when we when we're legally permitted yeah <laughs> yeah that was my lockdown project is sort of preparing the uh preparing the room the fatted it calf. looks pretty good <laughs> looks ready to go 
are there any really significant moments with the conversations with people that you've had that have you thought oh that's I, that's going to have a, a direct impact on how i am as a musician how i approach writing i mean there's there's so many great stories and and so many great ideas presented by people on the podcast you know i mean you'd have to sort of isolate it to particular aspects of the process i suppose and start thinking okay what have we learned that's great about melody writing and what have we learned that's great about writing lyrics and structure and i mean there's there's just so much stuff you know we've had um people talk to us about writing songs um without any kind of musical backing you know just um lyrics poetry prose even um coming up with stuff putting it into your phone and setting it to music later we've had people talk about writing tracks and then connecting them in modular kind of ways until they find something that feels like a great piece of music. And then they'll take a melody that they had from something else and superimpose it onto all those different sections until it hits and create some weird combination that, that sounds like a hit. Um, we've had people like Andrew WK talk about writing songs based on um, uh, the, the music having a certain feeling and then the feeling itself inspires the words that he writes for it. Um, you know, we've had people talk about the sort of classic old school brill building style, get in a room with a piano and just write songs all day kind of approach. Almost everyone has something to say that's of interest, you know. Yeah, I mean, so you know, some songwriters talk about getting in almost a kind of meditative state. Um, like I remember Colin Hay from uh, Men at Work um, told us he will just sit and do nothing. Like literally sit on the on a couch, sit back and just clear his try and just clear his head of any conscious thought. And if he succeeds in that, ideas will start to present themselves. Things will just start to drift into his kind of consciousness and like creative things, you know. But he, but to get to that um, state, he has to just kind of just clear his head and just sit back and do nothing, not touch an instrument, not no stimuli whatsoever. And, and eventually things kind of start to percolate in his brain, you know. Just going to say, there's just so many opposites. Um, people will come in and say, you know, I gather loads of possible titles and I put them in a Word document and then I start with the title. And then the next person will say, I couldn't possibly start with the title. I have to start with some kind of riff, you know. And so we're, we're just constantly surprised, really. Because there is no one direct way or there's no kind of, it just frees your process up completely. It's like, actually, we could we can do anything and there's no wrong way about uh, uh, to go about this. Um, it's actually mm -hmm. kind of liberating, isn't it? Um, and then you get, you could have, you know, you, there's been episodes where people have talked about just ripping themselves off. I used those chords and they worked really well, so I used them again. Yeah, Sting, Sting does that a lot, yeah. He's, he's, he's used the same chord sequence in, in about half a dozen songs, I think, you know, and it's if, if it works, you know, it's all about what you're putting over the top of it. I mean, there's, there's very, very little that's new under the sun when it comes to kind of chord sequences and things. Um, but what you're painting over the top, you know, you, you, you know that's that's what makes the difference. Yeah, someone like Mike Stock, you know, Stock Aiken and Waterman, mm. I mean, that was their business essentially, wasn't it? They would come in in the morning, take the chord sequence from Kylie's track, reverse it, put Rick Astley on top of it, another single, Bob's your uncle, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, that's... And, and it works. You know, that stuff sounds great, you know. So um, the, but there's just so so many approaches and we're, we're endlessly fascinated by it, really. I was listening to an interview with uh, Youth 
uh, yesterday on a podcast called oh, the, yeah. Hus- uh, the Hustle, and uh, Youth was talking about his time after he'd left Killing Joke, or Killing Joke had left him. Really, um, he he started a band called Brilliant that that ended up with PWL, and he said it was the most informative and important um, musical experience of his life. And it changed everything for him, working with. Um, Mike Stock and yeah, Stock Aitken and Waterman oh, just changed everything for him. Having come out of the, the Killing Joke camp and into that to do something completely different, um, even though the record wasn't successful, it was the most successful period of his life. Um, seeing the way yeah. that they worked and uh, you know bringing in stacks of vinyl and saying we're gonna we're gonna have the top line from that, the bass is coming off that, and there's the <laughs> and then here you go and uh, and I'm just off to write some cheesy lyrics, which is where they fell out actually where that's the bit that didn't land with him um yeah, really interesting well, youth went on to to do the uh, the fireman albums yeah. with uh, McCartney as well, didn't mm. he, which I mean electric arguments in particular i mean that there's an interesting way of of writing songs and making albums literally i mean I think the it, Paul just literally made those songs up on the on the spot, we just start with a drum pattern or a bass line or a guitar riff, and then just just build around it and just make up words on the spots and you know um, and every, every, there's 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 no as you say there's no um, there's no one correct way to do this thing it's it's you know it's kind of chaos it, 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 you know in in its way you can kind of try and be ordered about it and right I'm going to sit down at nine a.m. every morning I'm going to right till 5 p.m. and you know but it's it's a kind of you know how these things kind of arrive it's it's there's there's always that little sense of mystery about it you know what I mean there's a certain magic involved which is why I think um why it fascinates people and why I still think you know we we found so much mileage in in this subject for you know know, nine years of of doing this you know we, we, we haven't kind of exhausted it seems that you know the different ways people approach it and and we still you know you always keep that little essence of kind of magic alive the songwriting process is um kind of couched in mystery in some respects isn't it because we are we hear these stories of people for whom songs just arrive in a moment of inspiration um, and we do hear those kind of stories we've heard the stories of people waking up with a tune in their head and just literally transcribing it um, and so that does happen to people, but um, beyond that, when you get into the more practical aspects of it, almost everyone still has to sit down. Like, you know, like Beth Nielsen Chapman told us about the gym of creativity. She gets up, she goes to that gym, she works out every day. And even in the moments when she's not in the gym and something comes to her, she knows it's because she put that time in, because she trains every day to do that, you know. Um, so we, we hear all these really practical ways in which people sort of take the time to, to be present for it and to show up and try and do it. And you've kind of got to show up no matter how inspired you are, you know, you've got to kind of do the work. Obviously the, the sort of how these things arrive, the, you know, songs and whatever there, it, it is, is kind of mysterious, but then there's, there's also the element of craft, you know, once you get the initial idea. It's it's how you sort of you frame that how you know um, sort of how you structure it you know how you put kind of flesh on its bones um, that's that's the craft element you know it, it's not you know th- there is that magical element but it's all it is also kind of a lot of sort of blood sweat and tears to 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 turn it into a good song and a good record and uh, yeah you know 
I think um, I think it was in the the Prince episode that you sort of touched on the Malcolm Gladwell, the kind of from the outliers, this the idea around the the theory of needing to put in ten thousand hours in order to master something. Do you think that that is how how relevant do you think that is in terms of songwriting and being a musician? Well, I mean, it's it's just a truism, isn't it? You the the more you do something, you do you you, you will get better at it. Um, you know, I mean, you know, yet there's, there's certain people who, who might have a kind of a predisposition to being creative and to, to music and songwriting, for example, but but still, you, they still need to work at it. You know, Prince worked at it. The Beatles worked at it. Um, you know, anyone you admire, they, they put the hours in. It's just, it's, I, I think it's, of course, that's how you get good. <laughs> you know, no, no one's sort of good right, right out the blocks. It just just doesn't happen, you know. I think anyone. I think. I mean, I, I mentioned before we started rolling that we interviewed um, Jeff Tweedy uh, of Wilco recently, and he's just written this book, How to Write One Song. And um, you know, he's very keen to make the point that you know anyone can do this. Where the the quality of the final product, you know, might vary from person to person, but anyone can write songs. Um, you know, if they put their mind to it, you know, as much of a cliche as that is, uh, but it's true. You know, anyone can do it. It's just how much you you want to do it, how much work you're willing to to kind of put in. Is it that you you really want to write songs, or you like the idea of being a songwriter? If it's the latter, then maybe you know, maybe it's really not for you. But if you really, if you want to do it, you'll make the time to do it. You'll put the time in, and you will you'll see improvements over over a period. You know. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's good. It's good advice, isn't it? And and just on that subject, do you get people sending you music now and wanting to be on the show? Yeah, all the time. There's two. I guess there's two layers of it. We get um, constant stream of offers for guests who people who would be potential guests who have album campaigns and their publicists are are offering them to us for an interview. Um, many of which we have to refuse now, unfortunately, just because there's only two of us and we've got this kind of production line system set up the way we produce the show but um it can only cope with so much and uh, we're both really busy and we've got kids and lives and everything else going on um so we have to unfortunately say no even to some people that we'd love to speak to um and then there's another layer of people who um, are just sending us their music and saying i've written a song or i listened to the show and it inspired me and here's a song i wrote and please check out my album that sort of stuff that's very nice isn't it that's that people have been inspired and share their music back to you yeah i think people take a lot from the guidance of you know people on the show and then they apply it in their own songwriting yeah you know, we've had people who've, who've sort of wrote to us and said they've just they've taken up songwriting off the back of listening to us they weren't even into into doing it before but listening to our show has sort of um has motivated them to start which is you know that's something we could never have foreseen happening and it's it's one of the most gratifying aspects of the whole thing yeah it's fantastic it, it is it is baffling to us. We get emails from people saying, I'm just jogging alongside the Hudson River in New York and I'm listening to the show and I was just wondering, or they'll say, I'm in Lebanon and I listen to the show. And you think, how incredible is that? You know, I mean, we just we just make this, you know, for nothing, for, for pleasure, really, you know. When when you look back at the sort of the beginning episodes from um from the podcast it's a it's a pretty eclectic kind of mixed eclectic choice and it seems to be something that you've carried throughout the show um how did you how did you arrive at the decisions about who you wanted to start out the show with 
Uh, we just we just thought who would we like to speak to. It was as simple as that, really, and we just made a list um, and started emailing managers and publicists and things, and uh, and just waited to see if anything anything came back. Um, we just figured from the start, um, let's just aim high. Who do we, who who do we like? Who do we admire? Um, you know, and you know, put enough people on the list, and the law of averages says, you know, you'll you'll get a couple of positive responses, and that's and that's what happened. We had uh, Billy Steinberg and and Todd Rundgren, um, with the first two positive replies that we got, um, and we owe those guys a lot because they that was just you know they said yes based on nothing. We just said we're starting this this podcast. Would you like to be on it? And they were yeah, all right, and and. And that was it, and we were off, you know. And th- those two interviews went so well that it, um, it just encouraged us. You know, if they'd have gone badly, maybe maybe this isn't for us. But it, it went great, you know. Billy Steinberg was like, um, the perfect first guest. He just, you know, if you, if you go back and listen to that one, the stories, you know, just, just so many great anecdotes, great stuff about the the craft, and um, you know, it, it made a really nice pilot, I, I guess you'd call it for for the rest of the the show and. And then getting someone like Todd Rundgren on so early meant that we it just gave us a bit of currency, really. And, um, you know, other people would sort of see, oh, they've had Todd Rundgren, oh, okay. And then we got, like, Jimmy Webb, episode four, which we couldn't believe. And and again, you start to get those, and that just started the momentum going, and, and we were just able to keep kind of building on on that, really. And it was, it was lucky that we were pursuing people that we really loved as well because some of those people aren't around anymore like someone mm-hmm. like sean smith we had in the first 10 episodes i think and you know he's not around anymore yeah. and so al Jarreau, uh, it's, it's great really yeah al Jarreau, great that we we were able to spend that time with them it's so exciting just hearing it back as a story now with this is how you got started is, is is hugely exciting is it as do you find it the same sort of you're getting the same sort of creative fulfillment from the podcast as you do from music making um I don't know. Really, it's a different kind of fulfillment. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard work, really hard work. I think making the podcast, and we do the research, and we try and be thorough about that, and we we listen, and we really know the material, and we do the interviews, and there's a whole range of things that can go wrong with an interview, like you know when someone rocks up and their mic doesn't work, like (laughs) mine. But. yeah, you've got to deal with all that and you're ensuring that the person will be there and the recording will be good and it'll go well and all that stuff. And then, yeah. of course, you've got post-production and editing and making it really work as a, an episode. And, yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but it doing it and delivering it is fulfilling. And when people respond well to it, it's, it's great, you know. And the experiences we've had getting to sit down, you know, walk into a room with a Paul McCartney or a Paul Simon or Alicia Keys or whoever it might be, that's kind of spares us on year after year, really, because mm. we think, well, we were sitting at Sting's kitchen table, his dining room table, talking to him about, and he's playing Roxanne for us on his guitar. What's going to happen next year? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're chasing that next buzz, basically, and I guess that's sort of uh, analogous to to songwriting as well. Mm. You know, you 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 write a song you're excited about, and then oh, you want you want that feeling again. I'd say you know songwriting is probably more you know that's that's a more it's a more pleasurable experience on the whole because you just you know it's it's you in a room it's two people in a room 
you know, bouncing ideas around and, and, you know, you get something you're like, oh, that's good. And, you know, and then you, you, you end up with something you're happy with. And, and whereas, you know, like Sai says, there's a lot of, a lot of hard work and kind of just, just sort of, I mean, it's not drudgery by any means, but it's just, you know, there's a lot of sort of prep involved, a lot of research. There's travel, well, used to be travel involved. Um, you know, there's all that sort of stuff. There's just, there's the, the, the nerves of meeting some of these people, you know, um, that, it, that sort of, the, the, the pre-interview nerves have never gone away for, for me, but that's good. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I think you can, you need a bit of, a bit of that to, to do a good job. I think if you're not nervous beforehand, you've probably got a bit, a bit complacent, but, but, you know, as Sai says, you know, the, the buzz of, of doing, of, of getting in the room with those people and then. You know what the way you you, you just feel a million dollars afterwards, especially if it's gone really, really well. You know that it's worth doing what we do for for that post interview buzz. You just you just walk out with like this kind of ready breath glow, you know. And like when we did the Sting one, um, we walked from we did that in his his apartments in in Battersea, and and we we came out of there and we must have walked. It was a boiling hot day in London. We were laden with gear all the recording equipment and stuff. And we must have walked a few, a good few miles to like, what was it like Kensington High Street or something? Just, just jabbering away. Like a, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. just like giddy sort of schoolboys. And, you know, before we knew we'd walked miles, like, like sort of like, you know, laden with all this gear and um, sweating, dripping with sweat, you know, but uh, <laughs> we hadn't noticed really. And, um, and that's that's great, you know. I kind of missed that, you know, since since the whole lockdown thing. Like we still we still done a lot of interviews, um, via Zoom and stuff. But I missed the 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 one on one contact mm. with these people. You know, it's um, it's it's a really exciting thing. Never never gets old. But then writing a song, writing a song together can be similarly fulfilling, can't it? But yeah. you've got those moments where we've written stuff in a matter of minutes and you know, and there was nothing there and then there is something there mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And mm-hmm. you know, Brian will start playing just as we're about to leave, Brian will start playing some chord sequence and I'll sing over it. And literally six minutes later there is a song. Mm-hmm. And those kind of things which don't require all that research and post production <laughs> are also really lovely. Yeah. That's so great. I think we, I mean, we're kind of almost at the end here, I think. Um, um, but we do have a, a, a an irregular feature called Ben's tangential question. And uh, <laughs> right, so I'm okay. just going to see if Ben has a tangential question <laughs> to throw I'm, in I'm at the afraid, end of the interview. <laughs> I'm afraid I asked it earlier on, mate. Oh, Sorry. did you? Oh, I, wheeled, I, wheeled, we... I wheeled it out at any inopportune moment. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, that's the beauty of a tangential question, isn't it? You can just go wherever it wants. Um <laughs> Simon and Brian, thank you so much for coming on and and being on uh, on the podcast. Um, it's brilliant it's to talk to you. Um, can we uh, can we finish off with uh, you introducing the song that people are going to hear now, please? Yeah. So how did Sweet Tea start, Brian? Was that you on the keyboard? Yes. Um, I, I I think the keyboard line came first. I remember writing that in a friend's flat in Shepherd's Bush. That's what I remember. See, so I said I have an encyclopedic. <laughs> memory um yeah i had that piano riff for for months and months and then i think we finally got in the our little sort of rehearsal studio and um started to kind of put some some meat on its bones i remember our, our drummer at the time chris i remember him being involved maybe in the sort of the melody and then um i don't know i just remember kind of throw i think you came up with the whole sweet tea 
motif. Yeah, that's some some kind of concept about cheering someone up. My solution for that is sugar, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of when we heard. I think when we sort of look back at the lyric, it's it's it could be like slipping someone a Mickey Finn. It's a little bit sinister. <laughs> it could be, it could be taken. It could be taken completely literally, or it could be like, "What is this sort of? What are you putting in this person's tea?" It's it's an odd kind of song in that way, but um, it's one we've always been quite fond of. Um, and of that batch that we we you know the initial kind of so the Jerker batch of songs, um, that's the one that kind of stands, I think, head and shoulders above above the other ones. And actually, one of our guests. It's one of the few, well, I think it's one of the only times one of our guests has mentioned one of our songs when we interviewed Jackie DeShannon. She mentioned that she'd been listening to our songs and she picked out that this one as um, as her favourite. So if it's good enough for Jackie DeShannon, then it's good enough for us. <laughs> Simon and Brian, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. Pleasure.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production.